Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Chapel from my office. I got some cool guests with me today. Uh, Vinny and Desiree, if you guys hey. want to say hi. Hello. Uh, we basically got snowed in here in Chicago, and we got about, what, six to eight inches dumped yes. on us in about a couple hour time period. Yep. Roads are bad, so we've asked everybody to stay home. I'm going to go to the SUM website and share this on my personal page if you guys would like to as well. I will not be continuing today in the book of uh, Romans. I want to save that for when we are actually face-to-face -face and I can interact with you guys more than I put so much work into it, so I just kind of want to save it for times like that. What I'm actually going to do today is build on what I talked about yesterday in church, coming from Acts chapter 2, which is also Joel chapter 2, and giving that prophecy of God pouring out his spirit on us and us being end-time prophets, being sons and daughters who prophesied to this generation, I, I want to tie that into the last words that Peter gives, which is uh, save yourself from this generation. And he pleads with them, the Bible says. So I'm going to say, uh, share this on my page right now, making sure all the rest of my friends can join with me. And if you guys want to do that, you can do that as well. It really helps get the word out. So if you're joining with us and you're not an SUM Bible College, welcome to an SUM Bible College chapel. SUM Bible College is a school that allows you to have cohorts in your local church. Our church has about 15 students right now. We've been doing it over 10 years. My wife got her bachelor's degree there. A lot of our pastors got their degrees there. Now many are getting their master's. They also offer master's degrees with biblical languages and, and leadership master degrees. That's what my wife's doing. So if you're called into ministry and you're looking for a good church to join and to be trained locally, that's winning souls, making disciples, and then you can get an accredited education, get the GI Bill, Bill grants and loans, things like that. You may want to look into Metro Praise International Cohort, which is partnered with sum.edu. It's an Assembly of God accredited uh, Bible college. We do a three-year degree, a four-year degree in three years with around $10,000. That's almost debt-free, $30,000 a year if you do it right. And the master's program is right around, I believe, twelve, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 in two years fully accredited. All right, let's go to Acts chapter 2. Looking to Acts, day of Pentecost. This is the day that the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church. The festival of Pentecost was the Jewish festival that came 50 days after Passover, hence the name Pentecost. Pente is the word there for 50. And we as Pentecostals identify with this day because this was the day that the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church. Now, I've already done a verse-by-verse, -verse, chapter by chapter sermon series for our SUM students. You can go back and look on our webpage for that, mpichurch.org, and you can get all the information about that. And we discussed that in Acts chapter 2, there's nothing to do with salvation. As a matter of fact, if you go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, when you receive the Holy Spirit, you will receive power when he comes upon you. And even if you go back up to verse 5, it says, John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Spirit. There is nothing here in Acts chapter 1 or 2 that talks about regeneration. Regeneration is actually found, if you got your Bible, just a couple pages over in the book of John. 
John chapter 20 describes what happens when Jesus meets with them and then he breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Look at John chapter 20, verse 22. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So when did the disciples receive the Holy Spirit for regeneration? Uh, they received that when Jesus breathed on them. Now, a lot of times people try to say, well, that was just a precursor to what happened at Pentecost. No, think about John writing his gospel. John starts off with, in John chapter 1, talking about to as many as received him, those he gave the right to become children of God. Then in John chapter 3, he talks about how to be born again to Nicodemus and become a child of God. Then in John chapter 6, 7, and 8, he describes with uh, the Jewish people why they're not becoming children of God, why they're not being regenerated. It's because they had rejected what the Father was doing prior to Jesus is coming. Now they were being hardened and the father was simply drawing in those of the Jewish people who had been receiving what the father was doing. Those were the ones born again. And then Jesus said, when I be lifted up, I'll draw all people unto me. That's going on in the further into John. And then in John 14, 15, and 16, it talks about what the Holy Spirit will do when he comes. And then we go into the crucifixion passages and the resurrection. And that brings us right back to chapter 20. That is the bookend of John chapter one. So if you look at John as a whole and the relationship the disciples had with the Holy Spirit, he is completing what he had started with uh, telling them that would happen. And so after the resurrection, they now receive the Holy Spirit for regeneration. That's why in Acts chapter 1, the Holy Spirit is not coming for regeneration. He is coming for power. Now in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, let's begin in verse 1. It says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now we as Pentecostals believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus referenced in Acts chapter 1 verse 5 through 8, is what they are experiencing. And then the evidence that they have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit is they speak in other tongues. Now, at this point, some people like to bring up and say, well, these were tongues that people understood. Well, we believe with 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that there are tongues of men and tongues of angels. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is evidenced by receiving either one that you had not learned. So you can be baptized in the Holy Spirit and begin speaking in tongues that men know, but you have never learned. That's an evidence. Also an evidence is speaking in languages of angels, languages no one knows, and they cannot be understood unless they are interpreted. So those are the two kinds of unlearned languages that you can receive as an evidence. But nonetheless, listen to, you, listen to this, my Baptist friends. I totally believe you're saved, but I still believe you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Listen, that was the evidence they received. My question to you is, if you've already been saved and you agree with the chronology here of the book of Acts, my question to you is, what happened when you were baptized in the Holy Spirit? 
And then people like to say, well, that is an initiation of the salvation happening in the book of Acts. And now that's going to dwindle away as time goes on. That's not true. The baptism of the Holy Spirit continues to follow the preaching of the word with signs and wonders that follow predominantly the evidence of speaking in other tongues. And that's why yesterday for my notes, when I described this event, I showed people that if they go to the pattern in the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, they will see that the number one pattern that follows every single time is speaking in tongues. So you cannot say that this is just referencing regeneration. Because when you get regenerated, do you speak in tongues and prophesy, my Baptist friend? No, you don't. You don't experience what they're experiencing in Acts chapter 10 at Cornelius' house where they spoke in tongues and then they praised God. You don't experience what John's disciples experienced when Paul preached to them in Acts 19 where they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. So it is clear that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not the sealing of the Spirit, which Ephesians talks about in chapter one, that you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. The sealing of the Holy Spirit is relative to the born again experience of John chapter three. What's happening in Acts chapter two is a secondary work. How is it evidence? How do they know they received it? They speak in unlearned languages, either of men or of angels. Now, once again, I asked my Baptist friends, have you ever experienced that? No, you can't just tell me this is your salvation experience and that you got it the way they got it. That is not the pattern of the book of Acts. You can see it in my notes right up here. Go to the website, look at my notes from Joel. It's on there right now. You will see the pattern is speaking in tongues. Now, you talk to Pentecostals like me, we've experienced both. I have actually spoken in tongues upwards of three times that I know of and have testimony from testimony from that people understood my language. If you go to our website and you go to mpichurch.org search bar and you put in testimonies, you will see the testimonies of all the nine gifts of the spirit in my life by God's grace. And you can look for tongues that people understood. Now, when we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, it says what you're supposed to do with tongues of angels, which is our predominant prayer language. You are not to speak them to a congregation unless there's an interpreter. And first and foremost, the one who is giving the tongues will be given the interpretation if there's nobody else there. So those of us in our Pentecostal circles who have a gift of tongues and they speak it out to the congregation, you better be ready to interpret it if no one else does. And I believe you uh, just had a similar experience to that where you had a tongue and then Rudy gave the interpretation in the life group. Is that true? Because he had told me you gave a tongue and he gave an interpretation. Yes. And then you said that that was what you felt in your heart you were speaking. Yes. Um, when was that? Because he told me about that um, this about, past Thursday. Yeah, I think it was about two, two weeks ago. Two Fridays ago, yeah. yeah. Amen. Can you just share that a little bit louder so everybody can hear you real quick? Just basically <laughs> what happened right there. Um, God had placed something in my heart. I believe it was about being bold and, um, nice. yeah, right, about boldness. And, like, there was a scripture involved and um, that was just at my heart. And I was praying in tongues and stuff. And then Rudy came out with the word and it was exactly what was in my heart. Like, everything mm. that was, 
you know, just on me at that moment, he shared it. And I was like, dude, that's exactly what was Amen. on my heart. Yeah. Amen. Were you giving those tongues to others or was it just in your prayer time? No, it was there. Literally. So it was a message. Yeah, okay, so. Yeah, during the time of Amen. And that's what 1 Corinthians chapter 14 talks about, is giving time for people to speak the tongue, others to interpret it, and then still for others to judge it to make sure it's in line with the scripture. So we do not believe that words of wisdom and knowledge and tongues interpretation and prophecy uh, give addition to the scripture, but they give confirmation to the scripture. So we're not continuing on the canon of the New Testament. We are just complementing the canon of the New Testament. But if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1 there, it gives you the understanding of tongues of angels not being understood by people. It says, well, let's go to chapter 13, verse 1. First of all, it says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. So that's the idea of tongues of men and angels. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, next chapter down. It says, Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially to prophesy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. So if we look to Acts chapter 2 and we see they have been given tongues and yet the people are understanding them and then Paul says that tongues are not understood by anybody, only mysteries to God, what's actually happening there? What's happening is, is that the miracle of tongues of men are being given to the apostles for a certain time, but the general outpouring of the Spirit, even as we see in the pattern of the New Testament, the book of Acts, the majority of us who are speaking in tongues will do it as mysteries. Only God will understand it because it falls under the category of tongues of angels, not tongues of men. And why would we think in heaven that they're walking around going, que paso, hey, how are you doing? They have their own languages. And so the Bible says that when you are speaking tongues of angels, you are not to do it to the congregation unless it comes with an interpretation. That's why it says no one understands them. And then it goes on to say, uh, verse four, anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves. So it's good to speak in tongues of angels when you're by yourself or in a prayer time in church. So people who try to say, oh, you shouldn't be heard speaking in tongues in church unless there's an interpreter. That's silly. We do personal prayer all the time in church. Everybody speak to God. During those times, everybody's praying. It's not confusing. It's just I'm praying my own prayer. You're praying your own prayer. Now, if we were to step back and listen to that prayer meeting, it may sound a bit confusing to those spectating, but you're not supposed to be spectating. You're supposed to be praying individually to God. And guess what? During that time of praying individually to God in English or in a known language, you can pray in the Holy Spirit language as well. But the moment I now pray for the congregation or I'm called upon, you know, to pray for the congregation, I have to do it in a way that everybody can understand and say amen. And so if I'm called upon in a congregation, I feel like I have a tongue and I give it nine times out of 10, it won't be like Acts 1 where everybody automatically understands it and it was unlearned to me. An example of that would be, imagine if I came to India, God gave me a message in tongues, I speak it, everybody from that congregation understands it, but I don't. So it was still a miracle to me, it was unlearned to me, learned to them, but the message was from God and unlearned to me. But that's minority of the time. Majority of the time, the Bible says, it says, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather you prophesy because prophesying is like preaching. It's inspired of God. It's a little bit 
different than preaching, but it's like preaching in a sense. It's understood automatically, right? And then it says, the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. So unless the tongue is interpreted, it can never be received like a preaching word or a prophesying word. But when it's interpreted, it's just like that prophesying word. Now, now people have tried to substitute the word prophecy with preach, but they're not identical. They're similar. What's the difference? The difference is I can be led of the Spirit to get a word from God and preach it. Prophesying is speaking in the moment for God as his voice. You're literally saying for this time period of when I start prophesying to when I stop prophesying, from my, the time I start to when I stop, I am speaking the voice of God. When I'm preaching, I'm doing it as, a, as if it was the words of God, as the scripture commands, but I am not under the assumption that everything I'm saying is always correct or always exactly the way God would say it, but I'm trying to say that's what's happening during that time of prophecy. Now, I still could be wrong, still has to be held accountable to the scripture, but I am saying this is a moment where I'm tapping into what he is sensing, uh, what he is giving me and what I'm sensing at that exact time. Now, that was all just the introduction because I couldn't just go through Acts chapter two without explaining those things. So the church is there, 120 of them in the upper room. They're experiencing the power of God. They begin speaking in tongues. Now, verse five of chapter two. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd together, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. So there's multiple disciples speaking multiple languages that they have not learned. Verse uh, seven, utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each one of us hears them in our own, in our native language? Now remember, that was for that time. In Acts chapter 10, there is no the recollection that anybody was speaking a language to any foreign person. Matter of fact, they had all understood the same language. So we know that it's not there in that way. And then in Acts chapter 19, there's only a handful of them. What is the purpose of speaking a different language? There's no purpose of that. So these uh, people hearing their language are getting this outpouring for that time as an evidence that God is moving among these disciples. So it's evidence to them, and it's a powerful sign to the actual disciples who are like, man, I've never learned this language and I'm speaking it. Okay, and it says they, they all hear them in their own language. Verse 9, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, per Pergia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, which is Africa, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. So literally right there, from Mesopotamia to Africa to the Middle East and the Roman Empire, you almost have the entire nations there at that time, the known world. Uh, I think some of this, uh, depending what might be considered Asia, because uh, like people from Ephesus and, and those, those places towards the Roman Empire that east were considered Asia. Let's just go there real quick. If you go to Ephesians, uh, well, no, no, go to 1 Peter. Let me just give you, let me give you an understanding of how the Jews were spread out at that time. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1, and it will show you 
that Asia is also included in there as well. And then they do mission trips there. But I believe because this was Pentecost Jewish feast, you have people there from all different parts of the world. First uh, Peter chapter one says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ sprinkled with his blood. So the Jewish people had been spread apart literally all throughout Europe, what we would consider Europe, Roman Empire uh, at that time, all throughout Asia. You know, who knows how far they went into China or how far uh, they would have gone into that direction, but they were there. And there, there, there are Jewish populations even there to this day. Um, and then they, they, the Bible says they were from the Arabs, which would be more of the southern Middle East and Egypt and all of that, and then going over even into Africa. Wow, isn't that something? And then there's even stories of, of Jews going into India as well. So who knows how many different languages, how many people are being preached to at that moment, but there are so many, all, almost all the continents of the world, except our continent of uh, North and South America, probably, and maybe you know Antarctica, but everybody else is probably being represented there. Just wanted to talk about the nations there because we need to have a heart for them. That's why we're called Metro Praise International. The Bible then says that uh, we hear them, both Jews and converts to Judeans, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. They thought they were drunk because it sounded like it was a bunch of babbling, a lot of chaos going on. But once again, they were being initiated with the Holy Spirit for the works of the ministry and they're preaching in their languages. Then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice, addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. So Joel about uh, 800 years before Jesus prophesied 200 years before the captivity of Babylon that the Jewish people would be in captivity because of their sins and their unwillingness to repent. But he also put there in his chapter two, Joel chapter two, that once they were restored back to the land, the times during uh, the, the time of the building of the temple with Nehemiah and so forth, the second temple there, that then there would be an outpouring. That was ended up being 400 years later. So think about this. He's prophesying 800 years before this event actually happens. And now Peter is saying, this is what Joel talked about. You guys would go into captivity, you would come back, you would build the temple, and then God would pour out his spirit. Now here's a little nuggy on why it had to be the second temple at that time and why the Jews today are wrong that the Messiah can't come and still be the fulfiller of these prophecies. The Bible says when they started the second temple that God promised them that the, the glory of the second temple would be greater than the first temple because he himself would visit that temple. So how in the world did the second temple ever have a greater glory? And how did God visit it if it wasn't Jesus himself coming into the temple, cleansing it, calling it his father's house? That was the greater glory. And then as Jesus prophesied in his lifetime in 30 AD, it was destroyed in 70 AD. So now it can never be given a greater glory or visit from Jesus. So the Messiah had to have come during that time. What is another indication that we show Jews that it had to be Jesus? Daniel's prophecies said that it was basically 490 years away from the Messiah coming to that temple. You look at the 70 weeks of Daniel, Daniel's prophecy fills 
fulfills perfectly with Jesus. If it's not Jesus, what happened 490 years? Uh, you know, after Daniel, ask a Jew today, there's nothing significant. Now they lose the entire meaning of the 70 weeks of Daniel. And so that's very powerful for you guys to understand that, uh, how God fulfilled his prophecy through Daniel and through the others of that time of that second temple. Okay, so they're all seeing this going on. They think they're drunk. Peter begins to preach. He now says, I'm going to tell you what Joel said. Verse 15, these people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel 800 years earlier. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see vision. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So listen, Joel starts to, uh, Peter's quoting Joel, says that the last days have started now, the pouring out of the Spirit comes now, and then he turns to all of the apocalyptic language of the Old Testament, which we know did not happen even in their captivity, nor in the destruction of Jerusalem, because there's some Christians that try to say, oh, uh, the, the, the apocalyptic language here happened during either the Jewish time period of the destruction or the destruction of the temple. And then they'll try to say there's no more promises left for the Jews, you know. That is not true. These things did not happen. The sun was not turned to darkness, moon to blood. Maybe it went dark at the time of the crucifixion. That's true. But there wasn't fire, billows of smoke, so on and so forth. But what you do see is that during the time of of revelation that is prophesied during that time in the future when are those billows of smokes going to come when is the uh, the sky going to turn red and and all of those other things go to revelation 6 12 it hasn't happened yet and some people even try to go so far as to say that the book of revelation was fulfilled during the time of the destruction of Jerusalem. Oh my goodness, my friends, if that is supposed to be taken at that time, then where's the 144,000? Where were the two witnesses raised from the dead? Where are the trumpets? I mean, come on, everybody. Where's all the drinking water turned to blood? You can't take Revelation and make it so parabolic that you do away with the actual intent of that book. And who are the people that push that? Mostly Calvinists. Mostly Calvinists want to push replacement theology, say that the book of Revelation has already been fulfilled, that it's all apocalyptic language of the destruction of the temple. And yet, as we go to Revelation chapter 6, verse 12, let's just see if these kinds of things happened at the destruction of the temple. Come on, somebody. This is, this is ridiculous to say this stuff has already happened. It says, um, let's just start in, well, you got all the seals here. Uh, I could start in verse 1, you know. Oh, I just don't even know where to start. Let's just go to verse 12 since I'm already here. It says, I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair, and the whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. 
Now, if you try to say that happened at the Babylonian captivity, and this is looking backwards, you're wrong. If you try to say this happened, because uh, they'll try to date the book of Revelation, then before 70 AD to say this is prophesying about that destruction, you are absolutely wrong. When did the nations, or when did rather the mountains and the islands flee away? And then in verse 15, then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich and the mighty and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves among the rocks of the mountains. They called out to the mountains and the rocks fall on us hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the, la the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can withstand it there is the explosion of replacement theology until that day happens we're still waiting for it to happen so what was going on when peter was preaching he's basically splitting the church age to the judgment time. He's saying, now this is what God's going to do in the last days. Pour out his spirit until all of these things start to happen. So have we seen these things happen yet? Like Revelation describes, like Joel describes? No. But what are we seeing happen? The pouring out of the spirit. So what are we supposed to do? Keep receiving the spirit, being prophets, being sons and daughters who speak the word of God to nations until judgment comes. Come on, somebody. Amen. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus, verse 22 of Acts. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. So he's, preaching, he's speaking literally to the people that might have been crying out, crucify him 50 days earlier during that time of crucifixion. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now, sometimes people like the reformers, sadly, Martin Luther and John Calvin and others, uh, uh, Martin Luther, try to make Christianity anti-Semitic by blaming the Jews for Jesus' death. And then that is what Hitler actually used to uh, uh, put the Jews in gas chambers. So it wasn't a coincidence that Nazi Germany hated Jews and the Reformation was based in Germany and Martin Luther was a German. This was the thought of anti-Semitic Christians. For that reason alone, I doubt whether or not a lot of those reformers are in heaven, especially Martin Luther. Because if you treat God's people this way, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God, let alone any people that way, right? But what does the Bible say? The Bible says God knew they would do it. And he did this according to his plan. Now, did he make them do it? No, just like in the story of Joseph, God doesn't make Joseph be wicked, uh, make Joseph's brothers be wicked and throw them in a pit, but he knew they were going to do it and he allows it for his glory. Once again, it's not God making people do evil so he's responsible for it in some fatalistic, Calvinistic way. No, what, what God is doing is using the wickedness of men like a grand chess player to his own glory. He knows what moves they'll make if they're in these positions and then when they make those moves he uses that for his glory still holding them responsible but nonetheless it's his plan that is fulfilled and that's why all things work together for the good of those who are called so all the evil that has been done in the world will be summarized like this it worked out for God's plan now did he make evil men do that no so foreknowing foredetermining does not mean for making does not make 
sake for doing. God is just planning and knowing what wicked men will do and then doing what he will do for his own glory. So they're still responsible for their own choices. They can't say, well, then why did you make me this way? Why did you do such and such a thing? No, the potter did what the potter wanted to do, but it was up to them to whether or not they would be good clay or bad clay. It's up to you what kind of clay you are. It, according to God, the Bible says he wishes that none would perish, wish that all would come to the knowledge of God and through, you know, come to repentance. So it says, you guys did this, but God meant it for good. Verse 24, God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And why was it impossible? Because there was no sin in him and death is the penalty of sin. So he, the Bible literally said, gave up his own life. If he would not have given up his own life, he would have been like a superhero unable to die. He willingly made his body and his soul connected to his body to be able to be separated at death for his body to die. Otherwise, he would have supernaturally empowered his body and you never would have killed him and his soul never would have had to separate from it. He purposely gave his body weakness to die. That's what Philippians 2 says. He made his body even obedient to death, which he didn't have to. But since he allowed it to die by right of the kingdom, and that's why I like uh, a line which in the wardrobe, uh, the lion tricks the witch to killing him. And then because he's innocent, he gets raised. Of course, that's a play on the resurrection here. Because Jesus is innocent, as they think they're killing God in one sense, like they're ending God's plan, he gets to raise his body from the dead and now be the savior of all mankind. What a beautiful plan that he had enacted. So his body could not stay dead. It was impossible. That's what it says. Verse 25, David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your holy one or anointed one, Mashiach, you will not let that one see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You fill me with joy. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Now notice how David was a prophet speaking prophetically and then Peter uses that. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you concerning or I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Mm -hmm. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Mashiach, the Messiah, the Christ in Greek that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. That is why we love Jesus and not Buddha. And I did this last time I was here, and why not? That's why we follow Jesus and not the Quran. That's why we follow Jesus and not the Bhagavad Gita. That's why we follow Jesus and not the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith. That's why we follow Jesus as the apostles taught and not uh, the Watchtower and Jehovah Witnesses. We follow Jesus because Jesus is the only one raised from the dead and his teachings have the authority to raise us from the dead when we believe in him. The same thing will happen to us. Verse 33, he was exalted to the right hand of God. 
Now, some people will say, well, if he was God all along, why did he have to be exalted? Daniel 7, one like the Son of Man gets all the authority. Jesus as God the Son, the Word, the Logos, pre-incarnate, existing with the Father in eternity past, always had divinity and all of the attributes that go with it. I mean, all the accolades that go with it. But man was given a certain amount of authority and had lost it. He had to come and be a man to get what we lost and then to go back to the father he now represents mankind because he's the god man and he can give mankind all that man had lost so as long as he has flesh we have the promise of a resurrection as long as he is in the human nature we have the promise of our nature being like his nature being participate participants in the divine nature as peter says and i like to say dancing with the divine so the God-man is now exalted as Daniel 7 prophesied to the right hand of the Father. He received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. So he sends the Holy Spirit, the Father's promise, okay? And that's why it's getting poured out. That was the promise of Joel, that it would happen upon all sons and daughters. Now, it might be good here to understand, he said he poured it out on what you now see and hear, poured out the Holy Spirit, it might be good to understand the relationship the Holy Spirit had with the Old Testament saints. Uh, people have dif dis different opinions and disagreements on this. Some believe that the Old Testament saints were regenerated even before the Holy Spirit came. I tend not to think that way because the New Testament doesn't say that they were able to, the New Testament says they were not able to go into the presence of God yet they had to dwell in the place called Sheol. And in Sheol, there was two compartments, Abraham's bosom and Gehenna, the place of torment and hell. And Jesus literally tells us that parable. Now, if that's not an actual fact, then Jesus told us make-believe, right? But I don't believe Jesus was walking around telling us the equivalent of make-believe or the equivalent of a cat in a hat. Jesus literally tells us that when the rich man died and the beggar died, the rich man who was wicked goes into Gehenna, goes to hell, and then the, the beggar uh, goes to Abraham's bosom. Now, why was that not in the presence of the Lord yet? Because they had not yet been regenerated. Why couldn't they be regenerated? Because Jesus had not been dead and buried and offered himself as a living sacrifice for our sins. Why is it it starts new in John chapter 20, the fulfillment of John 1, John 3, etc., is because now Jesus is raised. He can now give the Spirit, and regeneration is a new covenant blessing. Okay, that's the first thing I see new covenant as the only ones that were regenerated. So what do I see the Holy Spirit doing in the Old Testament? I see him coming upon certain individuals, coming upon Samson, coming upon Moses. Then when Moses needs help, the Holy Spirit comes upon other elders, right? And then the Holy Spirit came upon David. And then he said, don't take it from me. Why? Because he had seen the Holy Spirit come upon Saul and then be taken from Saul and be replaced by evil spirits. Okay, so what we are now experiencing and what I believe um, uh, Peter is saying they're now experiencing and we now experience is twofold what they didn't have. Number one, we now get regenerated, a permanent sealing and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's the first thing. We're born again. That's literally why I believe Jesus was talking to Nicodemus because he didn't have that regeneration, that born again uh, experience. The second thing that we have that we don't is a continual out, uh, outpouring of God's power to all be prophets like they were prophets. That's literally what it means to be a prophet, one who prophesies, so that we all now can be that. A kingdom of priests, not just individual priests every now and then from a certain tribe, but a kingdom of priests. So we have two experiences 
that they didn't have. We all, all regenerated and were all empowered. I believe that's why the Bible says John the Baptist, who was the greatest of the Old Testament saints, uh, prophets, and why do I believe he was the greatest? Because he was the closest to Jesus. Okay, but why is he now the least in the kingdom? Because he didn't have regeneration and the continual outpouring. Does that make sense? Hopefully that answers some questions that may come up. Now he quotes again from David. He said, for David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said. Now remember, if you were regenerated and could have ascended to heaven, David would have already been in heaven. But he knows that David could not have ascended to heaven until Jesus did his work, the one that he's talking about as the Messiah. So that's another proof there. I believe in Ephesians where it talks about he who ascended is the same one that descended and led the captives captive into the presence of the Lord. Where is he descended? He's descended into Abraham's bosom, taking the righteous with them and bringing them now into heaven. But David could not do that in his time. It took Jesus after the resurrection to do that. So it says, for David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, Jesus himself also used that scripture that says, the Lord said to my Lord. And that's why uh, uh, Jesus asked the, the Pharisees, well, if you don't believe I'm the son of God, then who is David's Lord? You know, tell me who David's Lord is. Because how does David have a Lord and also have the Yahweh in his life? So he has a, he has a Yahweh and he has an Adonai, Adoni. And so the idea is here is that the father and son are not the same person, but they are both over David. And David doesn't have two gods because later on, David, uh, David also says that his Adoni is the Lord. He has Yahweh. He has no Adonai except Yahweh. And there's not multiple Yahwehs. But yet here we see he differentiates Yahweh and Adonai, how we would say in the New Testament, father and son. Does everybody get that? As the father is God, the son is Lord. The son is God and the father is also Lord. But there are titles that they use. And that's how David was giving us a taste and experience of the Trinity. Verse 36 Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. There you go. He is both Adonai and Messiah. And Adonai is also our Yahweh, one God in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So when we confess Jesus is Lord, we're not just saying he's our master. We're also saying he's our Yahweh. Because we're, we're, we know that Yahweh is Adonai, that they're the same in substance, but different in person. So then he says, when, the, uh, when the, the Bible says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and all other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Now, this is the message. How much time do I have left to give you guys the message today? Okay, I've got 20 minutes. Amen. That was all the introduction. I guess there was two introductions, one about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and then going exegetically through this chapter. Think about this. We live in a wicked time where people are asking, what must I do to be saved? This is not the time to water down the gospel. This is time to have the same Pentecostal power that's to operate in signs and wonders. Listen to what Peter says to them. Peter says, repent <clears throat> excuse me, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, just like they have. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are afar off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So what was Jesus's message? A message of repentance. 
Uh, Matthew chapter four, verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven. It has come near. What was John the Baptist's message? John, uh, Matthew chapter three, verse two. He was going into the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. What was Peter and the church's first message? Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. What was Paul's message? What did Paul used to preach? Uh, turn to God and would, let me see, prove it with deeds of repentance. I just gotta look it up here. What was Paul's message? Deeds of repentance. Acts chapter 26, verse 20. Acts chapter 26, verse 20 tells you Paul's message. Verse 20 of Acts chapter 26. Paul says, first, verse 19, let's start there. So then King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preach that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. Now, why is that important for us to understand? We demonstrate our repentance by our deeds, but we're not saved by our deeds. Because right here in this passage, people think you have to be baptized to be saved. No, baptism shows that you have been saved. It's not that which show, uh, what saves you. And then some people say, like Oneness Pentecostals, that you have to speak in tongues to be saved. No, it doesn't say you have to speak in tongues to be saved. It says you can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit after you are saved. The beginning part is what is the salvation message. And then some people say, like the Oneness Pentecostals again, that you have to be baptized in Jesus' name to receive that forgiveness, not the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The name of Jesus or baptism in the name of Jesus means by the authority of Jesus. Go to Acts chapter 19 and you'll see how did they regard baptisms. They regarded it by the people who initiated it. There was John's baptism and there was Jesus's baptism of their time. And so when we baptize in Jesus' name, we're baptizing by Jesus's authority. During the time of John the Baptist, when they were baptizing in John's name, they was baptizing by John's authority. Name there simply means by that authority. Why would Jesus contradict himself and say, this is how you baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then inspire the authors here by the same Holy Spirit to say, now baptize literally in my name of Jesus. Now, the one is Pentecostals try to get away from that and say, well, the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is Jesus. And then they'll go back to like Acts, uh, Isaiah chapter 9 and say, say that the Son is called Everlasting Father, Advocate, so forth. My friends, <clears throat> they are twisting the scriptures and teaching a lie. Number one, Jesus is a father to us because he regenerates our spirit through the Holy Spirit, but he is not, the God, he is not his father. John chapter 1 says in verse 1 that he is face to face with the Father. And then in verse 18, it says, No one has ever seen the Father, but God, the one and only Son, who is, uh, but the Son who is himself God, has made him known. The Father and Son are distinct persons, though they're one in nature. Jesus is a Father like the Father in that he progenerates us, recreates us. 
He is like the Holy Spirit as an advocate, one that defends us, but he is not the Holy Spirit. I will show you where all three persons are differentiated, and that will do away with the excuse that now we can take the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and just say it's in Jesus' name. No, we baptize by saying the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we do that by Jesus' authority. But let me show you the different baptism, Acts 19. Uh, verse 1, it says, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. So all they know about is John's preaching, in other words. So what baptism then did you receive? John's baptism. What is Peter talking about they need to take? Jesus's baptism. And then you look in church history like the Didache and so forth and the apostolic constitutions, it teaches they baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's how you do Jesus' baptism. Now let me show you how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are separate persons yet share the identical nature. Going back to the Matthew 28 passage, it actually proves our point. One name, Yahweh, God of the Old Testament, who is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now let me show this to you and how it works in John chapter, four, uh, John chapter 16. Listen to how Jesus describes sending the Holy Spirit. He says in John chapter 16, verses 7 and onward, But very truly I tell you, who is the I speaking there? Jesus, the son, right? He says, I tell you, it's good for you that I am going away. Unless I go away, who cannot come to you? The advocate, there is your second person, the Holy Spirit. But if I go, I will send him to you. John 16, seven, Jesus is literally saying, I will send him to you. He's not saying I'm sending myself. You have to make the Bible look out of order, just like at the baptism. Jesus, the son is in the water. The father is speaking from heaven and the Holy Spirit is coming in the form of a dove. It's the same thing here. The father is in heaven. Jesus is going to go to him and we'll hear about the father here in just a minute. And when he goes to him, he's going to send the Holy Spirit, just like he said in Acts chapter one. Okay, so he says, I'm going and I will then send the advocate. When he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father. I'm going to who? Who is Jesus going to? The Father. He's going to the Father, and then he's going to send who? The Holy Spirit, the advocate. I mean, come on, somebody. There's your Trinity right there because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. There is Father, there is Son, there is Holy Spirit, just like at the baptism of Jesus and just like how it's being described right here. The Father was always in heaven in Acts 2. He sends his Son in the flesh. He's dead, buried, resurrected, now ascends, as the Bible says. He's seated at the right hand. And then what does he do? He sends the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 33 again. Uh, let's just go to verse 32. God has raised this Jesus, talking about the Father. We'll see it clarified as the Father in just a moment. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the what? The Father, the what? The promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So, 
Oneness Pentecostals, you are wrong. We are not saved by repenting, then being baptized in Jesus' name, and now speaking in tongues. The gospel message is very simple. You are saved by grace through faith, Ephesians 2, and all these other passages we had, we had already uh, gone over in previous messages, especially in Acts, where I go through the gospel messages there. So what is he, what is he saying? He's saying, repent of your sins, be baptized, and then receive the Holy Spirit like we've received, and you'll have the same evidence and outpouring as, as we've had, okay? Now, look at verse 40. And oh, verse 39 says, this promise is for all whom the Lord our God will call. So it's not just for that generation. It's for all generations until the sun's turned to darkness, the moon is blood, and the great and coming day of the Lord, as Joel said, right? These are the last days. It will keep happening until that time. Now, here's the message. How much time do I got here? Nine minutes to give you the message. Praise God. It's like building a pyramid. It starts really wide, really right, really, and then boop, right on top, right? <laughs> With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Here's what I want to share with you. We need to be a generation of Holy Ghost-filled prophets that preach the message of repentance and plead with people to be saved from this corrupt generation. That's the message. That's the message, man. It is a simple message built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And my friends, let me just tell you, everyone listening to me, if you want to see revival, you have to be filled with the Holy Spirit and be willing to confront evil. You gotta be willing to do it. The message of the church is a message of repentance. Now, the Bible says that godly sorrow brings joy and it brings life. So we're not going out in anger calling them to repent, though we may feel at times a holy anger and do it, but it's not from anger. It's from the joy of knowing Jesus. We want them to know Jesus, though at times we may get mad at their sins and have to rebuke them. Even in the book of Acts, they cast blindness on a, a person. Another time they, get, they curse the magician who wants to buy the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, yeah, there may be holy anger. There may be all of these other emotions going on, but we do it because we love people. people. We love God and we love people. We don't want them to perish our message to them is the same exact message, but we have to have the same experience. So my question to everyone here is, have you been saved? Have you been sanctified? Have you been filled with the Holy Ghost and fire speaking in other tongues? Do you see signs and wonders following your ministry, prophecy? Do you see words of wisdom and knowledge, all of those nine gifts as described in 1 Corinthians 12? Because that's what's supposed to be following the preaching of the word. Look again in Mark chapter 16, just as a confirmation to that passage. Mark chapter 16 kind of ends by summarizing what happens in Acts chapter one and two. Remember, Acts is the second part of the gospel of Luke because it's written by Luke. Mark ends by kind of combining it all together. And some people don't accept the longer ending of Mark, but I do. I stand with the historic church. I stand not with, uh, 
with eclectic texts, but I stand with the ecclesiastical text, the text that God has preserved in the majority text, okay? That which like the King James and other versions are based upon. Your NIV will have a little note here, and some, some people then want to say it's a non-inspired version, and I could, should throw it away. But I think there's good to offer here if you know how to complement it with the, uh, the Texas Receptus of the King James, the MEV, and other translations that use the, uh, the majority text. It says in verse 15, he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Do you notice that condemnation only comes from disbelief, not from not being baptized? If being baptized was a part of salvation, then the, the continuance should have been, and whoever does not believe or is not baptized is condemned. See, once again, they always combined baptism with a work of righteousness that you do after you're saved, not a work of righteousness to be saved. Okay, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned, and these signs will accompany those who believe. See, that's that Acts chapter 2 type signage happening. And they will drive out demons. They will, in my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. Uh, this is not that we go out and do it like the people in the Appalachian Mountains, but if it happens, we see ourselves as being invincible. Paul was bitten by a serpent, didn't die. John was poisoned in church history. They say he didn't die. And it says here, they will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. And then look at, here's a taste of the book of Acts. Because obviously Mark, who was a companion of Peter, is writing his gospel after the book of Acts. So he wants to put it in there. This is what the church was looking like as it went on about its way. It says, after the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, sat down at the right hand of God. Then the who went out? The disciples went out and preached how many places? Everywhere. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. So we are to be spirit-filled disciples making new spirit-filled disciples. How do we do that? By preaching the message of repentance. You can't just expect the world to come be Christians without giving up their sin. At least genuine Christians, they may come and do it for like, you know, a get out of jail free card, or they may look at it like an upgrade to their already good life. You know, man, I already bought the Range Rover, and now you're telling me I pay another 3000 I can get the sunroof? Okay, I'll do it. Oh, you know, I already got a good life, and now you're telling me it can be better with Jesus? Okay, I'll do it. That's false conversion. True Christianity is only going to grow when disciples preach against their sin. And it says, verse 40, with many other words, he warned them. So what other kinds of things did he warn them against? Infanticide, adultery, all of the sins of their generation, all of the list of sins like Paul uses and Peter himself used in his epistles. They're going through all of these sins and they're saying, don't fall for that. It says he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Now, some people may say, oh, there's a contradiction. You save yourself. No, what did he mean by save yourself? Make the decision to put your trust in Jesus. It does lean far enough away from Calvinism to prove our point because if we didn't participate in salvation and Calvinism is right that God just picks and chooses who's going to be saved and leaves the rest of damnation, then you being commanded to save yourself would make absolutely no sense. 
but it makes perfect sense for us as, as long as you understand it. And you're not saving yourself by your works. You're saving yourself by choosing faith. You know, choose life over death. You know, choose this day whom you will serve. You participate in the salvation by saying, save me, Jesus. So imagine you're drowning. You can keep drowning and put more weight on yourself and drown even quicker. And that would be like sin. Or you can save yourself by doing what? Calling out to Jesus. Now you've saved yourself by calling out to Jesus, but do you take credit for being saved? No. You, you said, I want to be saved, but now the helicopter comes, the lifeguard comes, etc. They get all the credit, but you participated. You wanted to be saved. And in that way, you save yourself. Amen. So what types of things should we plead with this generation to save themselves from, you know, abortion, homosexuality, adultery, pornography, uh, anger, gangs and violence, corruption, uh, no-fault divorce, um, uh, selfish ambition, idolatry, false religion, um, corruption, greed, these kinds of things. Amen? Amen. Any questions, class? No, sir. That was great. Amen. So may we be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Vinny, would you grab that old guitar right there and lead us in worship with Desi? Desi, what song is on your heart that can encourage the listener today to be filled with the Holy Spirit? What song? It's Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's start there. Amen. I'm just going to put it towards you. Would you like to stand as well? Would that make it easier for both of you? Amen. Let's stand next to him. If you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, simply raise up your hands right now and say, Father, I receive your promise in the name of Jesus. Baptize me now with your Holy Spirit and fire and begin to speak in other languages as the Lord gives them to you, whether they're tongues of men or of angels. If you've already been filled with the Holy Spirit, the Bible says in Ephesians, be filled, overflowing again and again. Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ask God for a fresh filling, for power, for signs and wonders, for the gift of prophecy to come through you, words of wisdom and knowledge, for the casting out of demons in Jesus' name, for the laying of hands on the sick that they might recover. I pray for everyone listening right now as we close out this time of preaching to worship and prayer that you be filled with the Holy Spirit. You preach in power and that God will use you as a Spirit-filled disciple to make new Spirit-filled disciples so that all who the Lord our God will call might be saved in a generation one and revival come to this nation and the nations of the world, to Asia, to the Middle East. Come on, to Mesopotamia. Nothing worth more that could ever come close. Nothing can compare your all living hope. You precious Lord. Hallelujah. I've tasted and seen. The sweetest of loves when my heart becomes free and my shame is undone in your presence, Lord. Ooh, thank Holy Jesus. Spirit and Holy Spirit.
is so good. Hallelujah. Well, we love you here in the Snowden suburb of Elgin. I don't know if it's like this where you guys are at, but this is what it's like where we are at. We are Snowden today. And uh, it was a joy to be with you in the presence of the Lord. And I pray you have a great day and a great week. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.